0: My name is June, and I too, am an alcoholic, Hi. and I'm a member of the Barbary Coast Men's Tag Group of the San Francisco, Litchfield County Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I certainly would be remiss if I failed to thank those of you who are responsible for my visit here in Minnesota for the expression of your hospitality, and I'm really thrilled and enjoyed immensely being up here in an area that is so enchanting and. First time that I've ever been in an area like this, sober, sober. Many years ago, I made the bucket in Minneapolis, but that was a different deal altogether. (laughs) I define myself as an alcoholic based on my understanding and my opinion of the definition of the word alcoholic, as it is defined in the third chapter of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And for the benefit of those of you who may not have read the third chapter of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, It clearly, in very simple language, says this about you and I. Quote, We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. It makes no reference to how much I've drank, what I've drank, or for how long I have drank. Just an open and an honest admission on my own part. where I have to concede to no one else but my innermost self that I have lost this ability, because of that concession I took my first step towards recovery. I don't really know why I'm an alcoholic, and as I heard someone mention last night, I don't particularly spend any great time trying to find out why I'm an alcoholic. Why I'm sober is a big concern of mine and a daily attempt at staying sober is a big concern of mine. And I have to keep my approach to this recovery very, very simple for a reason that I'll share with you right now. I used to be a little bit ashamed to make this admission, but uh, I guess sobriety brings a little bit of reality into our lives, and we're taught to accept certain things. Since birth, I have been afflicted with technically what is referred to as a mental handicap, mental handicap. There's a long medical word for it, but in plain, simple language, I do not have what is called the power of retention. Uh, I can't read a book and uh, next week discuss with you with any degree of intelligence uh, what I have read today because I don't have that capacity to retain it. I can understand it and I can enjoy it uh, for the time that I'm reading it and perhaps for a few days after completing the book. But uh, once a period of time has gone by, uh, I'm in trouble. Now, with a handicap like that, it would be very obvious that my formal educational process would be very difficult. Now, I'm born and raised in a ghetto-like atmosphere in the New York City area which is not exactly Disneyland. (laughs) And I had a lot of problems without booze being one of them, growing up as a little boy in that area. Now, because of my handicap, I was placed in uh, what the New York State Board of Regents referred to as special education. Uh, Nowadays, they call that welcome back, Connor. I, uh, I didn't go through that one, two, third, fourth, and fifth crap. Uh, we just stayed in the room, you know, for about eight years. And, <laughs> and then one day, the teacher came in and said, you all have to leave, I got another group coming. And, uh, <laughs> and you're going to go across town to the high school. Now, in our area, we had two high schools, you know. It was a little bit bigger than Grand Rapids, yeah, And uh, And uh, you never noticed in areas that have two high schools that... That one high school is usually for the smart kids, uh, the rich kids that are going to become Pope and doctors and lawyers.
1: And
0: and then on the other side of town where the poor kids live, they have sort of the dummy high school, you know, where you learn how to pump gas, put soles on shoes, cut hair, you know. Now that's where I should have went. That's where I should have went. Talk about, you know, and the niche kids' high schools, the smart kids' high schools, they always have nice names, you know. Uh, Henry Longfellow High, you know, something like
1: that.
0: High school I went to, you know, didn't even have a name, you know, it had a number. If it had a name, it would have been something like uh, Lucky Luciano Tech. <laughs> oh, oh. Al Capone High, you know. Uh, driver's education in our school is how to strip a car, you know. Or how to leave the scene with an accident.
1: (laughs) I was the only white guy in a
0: black basketball team.
1: (laughs) Black guys called me Spot.
0: to tell you something, the president of the senior class was a guy by the name of Vito. That or that or saying, oh, there, I see right there. Lad. So you see, there was a lot of difficulty in, in, in my life, but I, I was to learn a lesson in that high school, believe it or not, a lesson that was perhaps going to be one of the most important lessons of my entire life, and undoubtedly the thing that I was going to need when the time came that I needed the program Alcoholics Anonymous. Because obviously, with the handicap that I had of Alcoholics Anonymous, had been a program where the requirement was to learn and to read and to master that book, and to come back every three or four weeks and take a written examination, and answer yes or no, or true or false, or multiple answer questions, I'd still be out there. Because there's no way I could have done that. Thank God that the very first words that were ever printed, in our book, which are contained in the foreword, to the first edition of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, sort of told us not only what our book was, but what our program was. And the simplicity of our program. I can't really quote it verbatim, but those words that were so important that they put them right up front, went something like this. And it will be obvious to you, of course, that I've updated one number. It says that we of Alcoholics Anonymous are now more than one million who have seemingly recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. And then the key, it says to show, to show other alcoholics, if they choose, precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of our book and our program. And then it tells us what our responsibilities are. It says we are quite sure that the accounts, the accounts of our experiences, not our opinions, not our theories, the accounts of our experience, both good and bad, might perhaps be An integral part of your acceptance to the truth and to the wisdom of this program. In its simplest form, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is based nothing more than practical experience. The practical experiences of you, the practical experiences of me, being shared at times like this with each other. That's how we've learned. Now I was introduced to practical experience right back there in them high school days. Because the hell of a thing happened to me the day I got kicked out of special education. I walked over there to that high school because my father had visions of me being the first Irish pope. <laughs> <laughs> and had enrolled me in that rich kid's high school. And they told me in that high school that part of the curriculum, the requirement to become pope, was that I would have to take a foreign language. (laughs) I had been getting F in English for eight
1: years.
0: (laughs) I'll never forget, they gave me a choice, and I really can't recall what they were. I think it was Spanish, German, French, I don't know, maybe Greek or something else, I don't know. My older brother Jack was there, and He knew I was in a quandary because I didn't know what to say, what kind of a language to take. And as a little Irish Roman Catholic, I had done my duty as a small boy and had served on the altar of my church. So I knew the Latin of the mass. And my brother suggested that my familiarity with the Latin of the mass, that perhaps I should take Spanish. that it might help me a little. (laughs) So as a freshman, I took Spanish one. And I took Spanish one for four years. I took (laughs) Spanish one. When I was 16 years old, I split from high school and I enlisted in the United States Marines. And I lost my virginity in a house of ill repute in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And I learned more Spanish that night than I did (laughs) in the whole four years. And that's why I have placed a hell of a lot of faith in practical experience. <laughs> that's why this program worked for me. I literally walked and acted through the words of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I saw the sentences in the paragraph and the stories that were contained in the book represented and played by you. That way I could understand them, and that way I could retain them, and that way it worked. Oh, I made some of the early mistakes. I'm certainly no example of success on the program of Alcoholics Anonymous initially, because I came to this program when I was 24 years old, and it took me six years to get my first year of sobriety. But thank God there was some asshole running around saying to me all the time, Keep coming back. Keep coming back. I used to come back to see if he was alive. (laughs) But quite honestly, I didn't like him. (laughs) He was one of them intellectual giants you find in the program. Had all them big things to say. Don't drink. Read the book. Go to meetings. <laughs> and I could not figure out how a simple answer like that could solve the magnitude of problems that I had. you know. Just don't drink. Read the book. Go to meetings. I, I, I said I don't know why I'm an alcoholic. I, I really think I do. As a matter of fact, I think we all get here about the, for the same reason. I don't think none of us are really that unique. Uh, I think the thing that differentiates you and I from that so-called social drinker is a discovery that, that you and I make early in our drinking careers. A discovery that's going to uh, embark people like you and I on a continuous quest which is referred to in our book as a a persistence, a a persistence in an illusion, you know, that somehow, some way, uh, you and I once more will be able to drink like uh, so-called normal people. And, you know, that kind of a quest accentuates the sheer madness of the life of the practicing alcoholic, are, you and I, trying to become a normal drinker. We're going to risk our lives, the lives of everybody we love. We're going to cast aside everything we hold dear in this attempt to become a normal drinker. And there's not an alcoholic who walks the face of this earth that could live and adhere to the conditions of normal drinking. No way. Do you know who normal drinkers are? They leave half of a drink on the bar
1: sometimes. (laughs)
0: They're that group of people who say, let's go have
1: a drink.
0: And that's exactly what they have, is a drink. Or 12 of them can be in a hotel room and they open up a fifth of whiskey and they polish a a nice big healthy shot and then they do the damnedest thing they put the cap back on the bottle (laughs) just the other day I was in a restaurant in San Francisco and the, the maiter, they pull that deal that they pull on you, you know. They say, well, well, your table's not quite ready yet. You know, you'll have to wait in the bar for 15 minutes. And, yeah, all right, you know. So I am standing over there in the corner of the bar sucking on a ginger ale or something. And right to my right was one of them little tiny tables that they have in them kind of places. You know, looks like something you'd put a, a flower pot on, you know, a little tiny thing, you know. And two little chairs for little skinny-butted kids, you know. With a big sign says, uh, happy hour, you know.
1: <laughs> it looked
0: like I was the only one in there that was happy, you know. <laughs> and then two of these so-called normal drinkers came in. And they sat down at the, the little tiny table right by me, you know. And I was just sort of watching them with a guy and a girl. I sort of liked the guy's action right off the bat. He was my kind of guy. I don't know what the hell it was he ordered... But it came in a great big glass. <laughs> Whatever the hell it was, there was a lot of it, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: Looked like a big candy dish, you know. It had olives in it and onions and toothpicks. And, uh...
1: and I got to watching him. And
0: he kept going like that with the olives. Hitting it back and forth with the toothpicks. I watched him. And then he started to talk.
1: <laughs> and I sort of really got interested in him then. Then <laughs> anyway,
0: he went and got a pack of cigarettes. He came back and he started hitting that thing back and forth. Finally, he ate the olive. <laughs> And they started to talk again. It was about 15
1: minutes.
0: I dare damn near, I was shaking so much, I damn near, I said, for Christ's sake, drink that devil of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs>
1: huh?
0: That's how normal drinkers are. I mentioned, you know, going into the Marines, and I think that's where it all started with me, and I don't like to tell you this just to uh, tell you blow by blow about my young life, but I think this is uh, where it started for me. I told you, I was just a young punk kid when I got out of school. Was 16 years old. It was a tough age to be in New York City because I wasn't old enough to get a legitimate job and not dumb enough to make the money any other way, and and i had a couple of cute hobbies you know hubcaps and car radios and things like that and, and i was a snotty ass wise ass little punk shit you know that what a jack rolled his grandmother if i knew she was holding a quarter you know <laughs> i lived under an illusion that the world owed me a living and today was payday you know that's sort of a snotty ass attitude that i had And although I didn't have any trouble with alcohol, I had a lot of trouble with cops. A lot of, all my life I've had trouble with cops. (laughs) I just trouble that early in 1941, prior to World War II, a couple of New York detectives visited me in a little candy store that I was operating out of. (laughs) And they took me down to 90 Church Street, which is the federal building in New York City. Surely I didn't realize it that day but that day I was faced with probably one of the most important decisions in my life because in the lobby of the federal building that day those detectives told me this they said something that sounded like well hot shot before you leave this building today one of two things is going to take place in your life you're either going to be sentenced to a year and a day at Rikers Island which at that time was New York City and County Juvenile Detention Facility, definitely not Disneyland, or you are going to voluntarily enlist in some branch of the military. (laughs) Now, I want to get the record straight so nobody gets confused in here. I'm no patriotic devil, and I'm not the least bit interested in defending motherhood or our foreign shores or anything like that.
1: It just made more sense to me
0: (laughs) to be in some branch of the military than to spend a year and a day at a Rikers Island. So I consented to be interviewed by recruiters. The first place they took me was the Navy recruiting office. I'd like to tell you about Navy recruiting offices in 1941. I guess that one was about as big as this room. Bunch of them cute little sailors sitting around the walls there and pecking away on typewriters. They didn't have brought women in the Navy in those days. Ooh, I almost said something. <laughs> and right out in the middle of the room, they have the chief yeoman. You ever see a chief yeoman in the Navy? Wear mm-hmm. them black chauffeur suits, you know, and white starched collar and ruddy little cheeks and crew cut hair and white teeth. They look like they come from Iowa, you know? <laughs>
1: and they took me up
0: in front of this guy. I already told you what kind of a guy I was. And before the chief even had a chance to open his mouth, I told him what ship I wanted to be on if I enlisted in the Navy, what fleet I wanted to sail with and a few other things, and- And you know that he didn't take that kind of talk from me or anybody else like me. And he let me know that. He let me know that. In in, in nautical terms, he let me know that. And when he got all finished, I expressed a few terms of my own in street talk, which really upset him. Really upset him. He got so upset That he came out from behind the desk, and in one swing, he floored me. Boom, just like that. Now, this should be easy for those of you who are alcoholics. When I came to, out in the corridor, I was, of course, on my back. (coughs) And as I shook my vision into some semblance of reality, focusing over me appeared to be the biggest man I'd ever seen in my life. Anything from that angle would look big. This guy looked like he was 19 feet, straight up. And he had on royal blue trousers with a red stripe and navy blue tunic and red and gold crap all over his arm and yard and a half of gung-ho up here and a white hat. He looked like Wallace Beery, you know. And he said, hello, tough guy. Well, uh, hey, you know, I, I knew I wasn't too tough. You better not think you're too tough when you own about 138 pounds, you know. And I sort of liked the fact that he thought I was, so uh, I was very susceptible to his suggestion that we go down to the cafeteria. I didn't realize that he had talked with the detectives. I had no idea who he was and what his intent was, but he brought me a lot of donuts, and a lot of milk, and a couple of bananas. And I know now he was just trying to put two quick pounds on me so I'd be up to the weight requirements for enlistment. <laughs> When he figured I was up to 140. He took me back up onto the fifth floor, and he said he had an office up there, and uh, which I really to this day think was the broom closet. It was, certainly was no bigger than the broom closet. And uh, he didn't even turn the light on when he opened up the door. He just let the light shine in from the hall, and he gave me an eye test and said I did great. <laughs> then he asked me to damn this thing. He said, are you a Catholic? And I looked at his uniform, and... For Christ's sake, I'm going into the Knights of Columbus, you know?
1: <laughs>
0: and I said, yeah!
1: <laughs>
0: and he reached underneath his desk, and he had an old grocery carton under there, just filled up with all sorts of fancy diploma-looking things, you know, that were all blank. And he pulled one out that was said, Certificate of Baptism on it. He said, you know your mother's maiden name? I said, yeah. He said, write it over here. And I went to write it. He said, with your left hand. I said, I'm right handed. He said, write it with your left hand. So I said, with my left hand. He said, now write your father's name over here with your right hand. He said, now put the name of a priest over here. And he said, I'll take care of the church in the date. And that night I was on a train going to Paris Island, South Carolina, <laughs> as a member of the United States Marines. You know. <laughs> Now, I want to tell you about that night, and come along and envision this with me. I'm a 16-year-old smart-ass, wise-ass little punk. My whole life, up until that day, had been about 40 square city blocks, which I knew every rooftop, every manhole, and every sewer, and every culvert, and the basements of every tenement house there. Perfectly comfortable in that area. I had never been out of that area. I knew New Jersey was on the other side of the Hudson River, and I knew if you went on up through Westchester County long enough, you'd come to a place called Connecticut. I knew that, you know. And now I found myself getting ready to leave my mother for the first time in my life. I was leaving an area where I was comfortable in, going to some godforsaken place called Paris Island, South Carolina. I was just filled with natural fear. And I got on the train that night with six other men who had enlisted in the Marines that day. But they weren't snotty-ass, wise-ass, little punk kids. They were old guys, I thought. 19, 20, you know. (laughs) Big guys. All way over six foot, all of them. Guys that had been around, seen a few Saturday nights, you know. And I was in complete awe of these six big guys, you know. And as we sat there on the train, the Atlantic Coastline Railroad, I sat silently listening to these men talk. And I'll never forget that night as long as I live. I pray I never forget that night. I know this won't impress any of you here because you live out here in the West. But one of them guys was a real cowboy. A real, he had a dirty hat on and everything, you know. And and he'd rode the range, you know. and And he'd done them things with ropes. And and while he was talking, he made a cigarette with his mouth, you know. (laughs) And I was just sitting there in total awe of this guy, wanting desperately to be him. God, I wanted to be a cowboy, you know. I wanted to do them things with the ropes. I wanted to make that cigarette, you know. Oh, God, let me be a cowboy. But that only lasted long enough until one of the other guys started to talk. He was sort of a liar, the second guy, because uh, at first he said he was in a circus. And he really wasn't what he was. He was a stagehand in a burlesque show that traveled around with a carnival. But his job allowed him to be backstage with the strip teasers. And, man, I wanted to be him, you know. (laughs) Now, I know to the younger fellows that are up here today, you know... Topless chicks aren't really a big deal anymore, you know. In our promiscuous society, don't get excited, son. <laughs> here's, here's a half a buck, go we'll get Playboy. You
1: know. <laughs> yeah,
0: being backstage with stripes is nowadays is sort of run of the mill. But in 1941, for a 16-year-old virgin, that was the deep throat of my day, you know. <laughs> And I wanted to be him. Only till the next guy started to talk. And he he had told something that it took me two years to figure out. Almost two years, not quite. He was a merchant seaman. And he told us that he had lost his ship in New York. I was two years into the Marines before I figured that out. How the hell could you lose a ship, you know, (laughs) in New York? (laughs) And he had enlisted in the Marines that day under a fictitious name to escape whatever kind of punishment uh, he was going to get. But what was so enchanting and exciting about him is uh, only a week prior to being there with me on the train, he had been in a place called Reykjavik, Iceland. Jesus, I was jubilant, you know. Here I was going to South Carolina with a guy from Reykjavik, Iceland. I was a world traveler. And the train hadn't even pulled out a pen station yet, you know. (laughs) And I wanted to be him. I sincerely and honestly believe that that kind of an attitude is definitely the beginning development of the personality of the alcoholic. For you see what was happening to me? I wanted to be something that I was not, and I wanted it right now. I didn't want it four years after college or six years learning how to ride a horse. I wanted it right now. And I didn't know how to do that. And they showed me how. Because as the train left Penn Station, we got a little chummy. And through some sort of a process, we pooled what money we had amongst us. And by the time we got to Washington, D.C., which was our first layover, through some form of a selective process, one of the guys was selected to make a speed run into downtown Washington, D.C., and he got back on the train that night with a shopping bag full of booze. Now, I don't know how much booze there was. I don't know what kind of booze there was. All I know is that night I drank. And that night I discovered the magic. I didn't shoot a cop that night. I didn't bust out any place that night. I didn't get tied down and straps and chains that night. I didn't go around doing some of the things that were to take place in my life later. That night I enjoyed every minute of it. Jesus Christ, it was the greatest time in my life. I walked into the dining car that night, and when that gentleman came to serve me my evening meal, I looked him square in the face. And I said, do you know who I am? And he said, no. And I said, I'm a rodeo star, and I've just come back from Cheyenne, Wyoming. And a little while later, there was a little old lady sitting the lower side of me who didn't give a damn who the hell I was. I told her I was an aerialist at the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. And someone helped me into the berth that night, and I told him I was the first mate on a ship that had just come back from Reykjavik, Iceland. I had found the release. I had found the potion. I had found the thing that could give me and make me whatever the hell I wanted. And at that moment, it began the process of becoming the most important thing in my life. I didn't know it. I didn't know of the things that were about to take place. It certainly wasn't my goal or my dream or my intent to cross over a so-called invisible line and become an alcoholic. I didn't write down in a a high school year book, goal, alcoholic. (laughs) I didn't wake up one morning feeling great with a pocket full of money and a brand new car outside and a wife that loved me and said, things are so great I think I'll join AA. None of that was meant, but it all happened, it all happened because of that illusion, you know, that as long as I drink this, everything will be all right, everything will be all right. Now, we get lots of warnings all along the way, caution signs, I call them, things that are saying, hey, you better watch out, and I got one right off the bat, but like so many, I didn't recognize it. Because they pulled that damn train into the most godforsaken place you have ever seen in your life. The following morning, a place called Port Royal, South Carolina. I don't even know why they give it a name. There's nothing there, you know. It's in the middle of a swamp. And that's where the, they embark all of these young Marine recruits to put them into these trucks and take them out to this place called Paris Island. And I don't know if the Marine Corps does it for psychological reasons or whatever, but they bring that train in there at 5 a.m. And that's a hell of a time. You've got to know that if you're an alcoholic.
1: Ain't
0: you know. it ain't daylight. I'm in the middle of a swamp, water all over hell. The only thing I can see is tracks coming up out of the water and all them damn trees that look like they're dead with all that... Track hanging from them, things flapping through there, steam coming. It looked like where Dracula lived, you know. Horrible place, you know. And I come down off of that train, and you know how I'm feeling, baby. I'm going through that first hangover. I wanna die, you know. Man, I'm not I'm not shaking, I'm leaping, man. I'm sweating like hell and I'm freezing. I gotta weight on my back and I don't know where the hell it is, and good god, I'm gonna throw up and I can't. And then I saw the first real Marine I was to see. Mm. And I could see that guy right now as though he'd lived right here in Grand Rapids. (laughs) And he was coming out of that fog, you know. I would have been better off with Dracula, you know. (laughs)
1: That guy was about
0: five foot eight. And he was five foot eight every way you looked at him. He was five foot eight, you know. And he had no neck. His head came right up out of his chest. <laughs> it was bright red, and he wore a smoky the bear hat. He walked like a sick duck, you know. And he came waddling right towards me.
1: <laughs>
0: hey. I should tell you how I was dressed. I was dressed rather sharp, I thought, for, you know, 1941. I don't know what the hell they wore up here in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. 1941, but in New York, to be stylish. You wore pants that were so tight at the cuff. You had to take your shoes off to get your pants off. The knee was about that wide. Your belt line come up here. (laughs) Padded shoulders. My coat went way below my knees. and I had a hat with a brim out to here and a little Frankie Sinatra feather and a chain from here down to my shoe. They called them zoot suits. Now, undoubtedly, down this balloon, you know, uh, he was from some place that didn't understand style, you know. <laughs> but he came waddling right up to me, and he put his face right in mine, playing chinny, chin, chin, you know, and, and half slobbering all over my face, he'd come out in that southern drawl, you know. Well, I guess we got another one of them New York slickers. Here? And Jesus, they went right through my head. yeah. <laughs> i guess every alcoholic who walks the face of this earth is familiar with alcoholic rage that's when your actions overrule your common sense and, and out of sheer ignorance and blindness i swung out and struck and i hit that guy and i spent the first 93 days of my marine corps career in the brig at paris island south
1: carolina
0: <laughs> after getting out of the brig though i pursued my military career and quite honestly i had no problems with alcohol uh, I had an unfortunate experience with the Japanese, and they took care of my drinking problem for about three and a half odd years, and when I came back to the United States, uh, I know I wasn't an alcoholic. As a matter of fact, I came back not too far from this area. I was brought back on a hospital ship to uh, San Francisco, but I was stationed in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was a representative of the Marine Corps on the ninth war bond drive, and uh, one of the guys on that same war bond drive was a lad from Minnesota by the name of Richard Bong who was a Congressional Medal of Honor air ace, and, uh, who got to be a very good friend of mine, and I believe he was from a little town up here north. And on the occasions where we'd be exposed to drinking, uh, somebody would ask me if I wanted to drink, and I would say some stupid thing like uh, scotch and Coca-Cola. Now, you know alcoholics don't drink anything like that, you know. And, uh, so I don't really think I had that problem. Uh, It was after my Marine Corps career, I entered into the construction business, and I spent most of my life in the construction business. I'm a 25-year gold card-carrying member of the Bricklayers, Masons, Plasters, International Union, Uh, basically a stone setter, a stone cutter. And I've traveled all over the country doing work, and uh, that kind of a life is conducive to, I guess, heavy-duty construction-type social drinking, which is another way of saying alcoholic, you know. (laughs) And drinking uh, finally got to me, finally got to me. It was in Escanaba, Michigan that I was first introduced to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because I had reached that plateau that's referred to in the book. You know, that book says that we will, in time, search for a lower environment. And we do this only to justify what we have become ourselves, trying to make the cancer we have become look good, you know, the only way we can do this is by comparing it with something that's more uglier. And I was no longer allowed uptown, you know. They didn't want me in them uptown places anymore. I had the money and all the clout and all of that, but I was an alcoholic and they didn't drink like I drank uptown, you know. Uptown, they don't get muscatel with beer for wash, you know. And they don't drink white port wine, you know, and things like that. And they were saying things to me in places like the House of Ludington, you know. Get out of here, we don't want you in here. Or what's your language? But button fly, stop talking like that, you know? And nobody likes me anymore you know and so i have to look for the justification i've got to look to to somebody who who can recognize how great i really am and that's why you search out that lower environment and i found it where everybody finds it you go to a place called skid row skid row never realizing that it was only a matter of a year or so that i would be an inhabitant of chicago skid row but i wandered into a little area up there in escanaba and I found what I needed, you know. It's easy to get attention when you walk into a Skid Row saloon in the morning. Yeah, oh yeah, guy Dan knows it. There's guys in that place who don't know whether they're going to live another 20 minutes. They're not sure they're going to die within the next five if somebody don't buy them a drink. They're sitting there and they ain't got a stew to their name. And the only thing they got is a little hope that some live one's going to come in. Somebody's going to come in and pull them off the wall and say, come on, have a drink, you know. And I walk in, and you walk in a place like that, you got the big construction hard hat on, says chief up there, pencils, rulers, man, you're the king, right? Still don't want you downtown. And you look over there, there's three of them sickies standing over there against the wall, and you don't know that the bartender's the secretary of the AA group, his name is Johnny Gannon, you don't know that. But you're playing out your role, and you pull out your dough, and you say to, hey, John, give me a double shot of V.O. and a little Budweiser on the side, and Give my friends over there a drink. You've been around long enough to know it's their first drink. And because it's their first drink, they're only going to have wine. You know that. got to get four ounces of wine for 15 cents. Big shot like you is going for 45 cents. Buy the whole place to drink. <laughs> and then you get exactly what you paid for. Johnny pours you your double shot and your little Budweiser there and them three boys got their drink and then they raise it up. Here's to you, Chief they know, they know I'm a chief, they know how great I am, the crazy they go downtown and tell them downtown what a big operator I am, you know. <laughs> and you're sick and you're mad. And then, you know, begins this recession, if that's the word, you know. I could stand here, I guess, from now until Father's Day if it was necessary to recount to you blow by blow all of the things in the obscenity that took place in my search to regain that control. I don't really believe that it's that necessary. But there were certain things that had to take place, as you well know. And for those of you who may be new in here, please believe, for we in this room or any other room like this, have no reason to lie to you, have no reason to impress you we are bound by a moral obligation based on our own salvation to share with you the truth and the experiences. The book tells us that there will be a time when we'll face a dilemma. I see the Alanons even have a literature now, the dilemma of the alcoholic marriage or something like that. Now, as I told you before, I, I don't have an education. But for about the last 17 years I've been in a self-education process. I take or attempt to do this daily. Take two words that I don't know too much about and I look up in as many dictionaries as are available different definitions of the words so that I can understand to the best what them words mean. And then I look into a Roger's thesaurus and I try the various uses of that word. And then I attempt to use those two words as often as I can during that day in my conversation. Now, over 17 years now, I've been able to pick up a lot of words and understand a lot of words. And I can remember the day that I saw that word dilemma. I liked it. It has an exciting sound to it, you know. I didn't know what the hell it meant, you know, but it just sounded nice, you know. And uh, I looked it up in the dictionary. And my God, uh, the definition in dictionary was worse than word, you know. And, and I was more confused then. And in our home group, uh, we had a school teacher at that time. Uh, he got too smart, went out and drank again. And, and I asked him one night in the parking lot after the meeting, I said, Paul, I said, tell me what dilemma means, but tell it to me in language that I'll understand. So he searched his thoughts for a while, and, and he said, Well, Duff, uh, A dilemma is when you have opposite answers for the same question, but both answers are valid. I thought he was really weird then, you know. I said, how can opposites be equal to being right, you know? So I sort of, you know, get out of here. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized what the book meant, what Bob meant, and what Bill meant, and what the men and women who were charged with the responsibility of writing words like Dilemma were trying to tell me. Yes, I know Dilemma well, and if you be alcoholic, like I be alcoholic, you know Dilemma too. You know the time and the moment when you were faced with that same problem, opposite answers for the same question, and they were both right. Mine came after a year and a half on West Madison Street, you know, A time when I became literally, to my opinion, an animal, you know. No longer wanted any place. Unemployable, you know. Just waiting to die and fearing to die, you know. And my drinking now was just well known on the little street that I drank on. I'm now in that category where your drinks are served in the morning and only wine. And it's two ounces in a seven ounce paper cup because they don't want you spilling it all over yourself. They don't want you breaking glasses and there's no conversation. They just pour it. And if you're like me, you're there at 6 o'clock every morning to get that thing that's going to allow you to just live a, a few more hours, a few more hours. And, and you sit there one morning not knowing that that's the morning you're going to be faced with the dilemma. You know? And they got that drink right in front of you. And if you'd be like me, you've been there, you look at that goddamn drink. And you got it right in front of you and you're looking at it and you know that it's killing you. You know if you drink that, it's going to kill you. And then back in here, something's telling you, but if you don't drink it, you're going to die. And that's a dilemma. That's opposite answers for the same question. If I drink it, I die. And if I don't drink it, I die. And you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision. I wish to say that I made the right decision at that time, but I didn't. Not at that very moment. I chose to go on, and as a result of that, further obscenities had to take place in my life. But there finally came that time, you know, and when, when I reached out, because I no longer could tolerate what I knew was about to happen, or what could happen. You know, there's some horrible thoughts and some horrible cliches in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, but they ring so much with the truth. And as cold and as hot as they are, they should be listened to. And I guess one of the foremost ones, at least that we use in the the San Francisco area, and probably here too, is that cliché that tells us that surely, each of us in this room will be alcoholic, knows full well that he or she has another opportunity to drink. No doubt about that, any of us can walk out of this room tonight and get drunk. We all know that, but there sits no one in this room Or any other woman like this that knows whether or not he or she has another recovery. You might very well have run out of recoveries, and you're only a drink away from the total madness and blackness, as it was referred to last night. One drink away from what? Death? Hell, if death be the only alternative, I drink tomorrow. I've never seen an alcoholic walk in the face of this urge. that was just scared of dying. Dying is inevitable, we all know that. There's bound to come a day in our life. When it's all over, many of us have already come close to dying. Dying is not the fear. The fear is, suppose I don't die. Suppose I have to go out there and live for 20 more years as an animal on Chicago Skid Row. Suppose i got to go out there for 20 more years in a joint. Suppose for 20 more years i got to be confined in a mental institution for the rest of my life. Or whatever. Those are the alternatives that I have, you know. And I don't want them kind of things. I don't want them kind of things. And along the way, you know, I was listening to the wrong kind of people in the uh, I was listening to some of them AA jackasses, you know. There's a lot of them around. <laughs> Just cause you get sober don't necessarily mean you get smart. It's easy to spot an AA jackass. He's usually trying to preach something that's not even in that book. And he's saying it so damn often that he begins to believe it. He's got you believing it. Well, I'll tell you one of them. Or maybe you don't do it up here in, in Minnesota. Maybe you're above it up here. And I know areas where you hear jerks running around in AA saying things like this. There are no musts on this program. Is that right? (laughs) Well, I don't have to leave until 2.30 tomorrow afternoon. And I'll get one of them books over there, and if anybody wants to sit here all night, I'll go through that book with you. And I'll show you at least 57 times in the book Alcoholics Anonymous where it says must. M-U-S-T. It doesn't say you had better. It doesn't say if you choose or when you're ready. It says must. And yet, you hear these jerks saying that. And they say, well, you know, you can't come down too hard on the alcoholic. Is that right? <laughs> Let me tell you how I work with alcoholics. Right along with the way I have to do it. Uh, a friend of mine just, as a matter of fact, uh, made fun of it the other night. Uh, you know, he's introducing me at a, a thing, and and he's describing me as uh the way he told his story about a blind man and a dog uh, he said that he was visiting in one of these little wisconsin towns you know that still had the little village square with the bandstand and the elm trees all around the square and he said he had gotten up early one morning to uh take advantage of the natural beauty of this autumn morning you know and see this little rural site and, he said he was the only one in the square it was very quiet uh, when all of a sudden coming down one of the side streets uh, was a blind man being led by a steel eyed dog and he said I marveled you know at the way the dog protected the blind man. You know how he led him to the corners and he held him back if there was any traffic, how he nudged him when the light was green, how he pushed him to the side when the light was red and he took him from corner to corner Clear around the square. And he said he just stood there just admiring that. And he said, soon they came to rest right alongside of him. And he said he was just about to say something to the blind man when all of a sudden the dog lifted up his hind leg
1: <laughs>
0: and he peed on the blind man's leg. This guy couldn't get over that. And what really amazed him was when the blind man did nothing more but reach into his pocket and take out some candy. And he reached down and he gave the candy to the dog. Well, he could not understand that. So he tapped the blind man and he, he, you know, he made me, don't you know what that dog just did to you? The blind man says, yes, he peed on my leg. He said, what are you giving him candy for? The blind man said, I'm trying to find his mouth so I can kick his ass. (laughs) I'm full of spirituality (laughs) and compassion. (laughs) But you know, in case I've offended somebody here by making reference to the must situation, I'm going to let you off the hook. Maybe. Like many of the words in a dictionary, must has a multiple definition, multiple definition. Of course, we know it defined as the most common way, you must do this, you must do that. Now, I happen to live in what they call the Napa Valley, which is the world's most famous wine-growing region, In a little town called Calistoga. I should have known the second definition of the word must, because tons and tons of grapes are harvested every fall in our little area. And when they go through the initial crush in the process of becoming fine wines and brandies and champagnes, the first juice that's extracted from the unfermented grape is referred to as the must of the grape. Should have known that, you know. But the other one, hmm, and you can check me out on this, the other one is how you describe the male elephant when it's in sexual heat.
1: It's in a state of must. <laughs> now
0: I've been here, you know, for 32 years. And there's no way in 32 years have I ever been able to bring myself to a point where I believe Bob and Bill and the original 100 guys who wrote this book would try to tell me anything about the sexual problems of elephants or the juice of grapes. They are telling me what I must do if I want what you have. Oh, some people say, you can't tell them, Duff, that they must do something. Our program
1: is only meant to be suggested.
0: Well, another suggestion is to step out from in front of a train. too. that's a suggestion, you know. I suggest you get out of the way of the train, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: and if must is such a tough word, you know, why do some people get so damn excited? over that word whereas in the fifth chapter of our book the portion which is read at most AA meetings a much stronger and sterner word is certainly used I quote as it was read here today this is a program that demands demands rigorous honesty hell there's no half ways about that but then some of these jerks you know They're talking about stealing money and taking coins out of banks and selling cars without a clutch. (laughs) Hey, they weren't talking about that. With sort of respected reverence to the original members, you know, they were a bunch of crooks, too. (laughs) Ask Bob to tell you about when Bill and them guys were selling that car wax back there in the Parkhurst mansion, you know. Sober, respected members of Alcoholics Anonymous. The honesty that they were trying to display to you and I is clearly defined again in the third chapter. Do you recall where it says this? We conceded, we conceded to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. To me, not to you, not to my wife, not to the to me. And that that concession done in honesty is, as I said before, the first step towards my recovery. I was finally brought back to AA via hospital and institutional work. The man who was to become my sponsor brought me here uh, against my will. But like someone said here tonight, I had no place else to go. And as many have said, I came for the cookies and I came for the coffee and I came for the cigarettes, you know. And the possibility of getting a job or finding some loose woman who lived alone. All of the wrong reasons. But somehow it began to work. And somewhere I began to stay sober. And shortly after the sobriety began, my sponsor said one of the most horrible things in the world to me. He said you've got to reaffirm your faith in a God as you understand him. Wow. What are you talking about? Now, I have never had any doubt in the existence of a God as I understand him. I, as many, was taught about God as a child from a mother and from a father and from the sisters in the parochial schools. Quite frankly, you know, I never knew what an atheist or an agnostic was until I came to AA. And I've never heard anybody outside of AA saying they're atheist or agnostic. It's only an I say that. And it's usually some guy that's been sober for eight months, and he's got a job, and he's got some money in his pocket, and he's two payments ahead in his car, and he can't figure out why, and he's saying things like, We're a little too heavy on this God crap. Let's talk about Librium, you know, or some jerky thing like that, you know, or relationships, you know. (laughs) Did you ever meet a a three-year-old atheist? You know, everybody believed in in at least three things at one time in their life. So how can you be non-believer? You know, I don't know a three-year-old kid who walks the face of this earth that didn't believe in Santa Claus didn't believe in the Easter Bunny or God. Try to tell a three-year-old kid that there's no God. No way you could do that. But somewhere along the line, as a result of our own actions, our own beliefs, we put one of them Al-Anon tricks and we detach. <laughs> and then we detach we're out there on our own again <laughs> doing our own thing and now the sponsor told me that I had to seek out this God because it was clearly told to me in the second and third of the three pertinent ideas that without them I'd die. I don't want to enter into any field of controversy here this weekend I'm sober long enough to have the privilege of my own beliefs. It's often said in a way that there are no guarantees. I am not in dispute with the program, and I certainly am not in any way attempting to alter any of the words in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. But as I understand it and as I observe it, there is an absolute guarantee in the fifth chapter of the book Alcoholics Anonymous More precisely in the second and third of the three pertinent ideas, where we are told that no human power could relieve our alcoholism. And then comes the guarantee because it's right there. But God could and would if he was sought. So the burden of the effort is now placed upon me. It is I who must seek. I must seek this God, this God as I understand him. And I'm full of fear. I'm full of the guilt of the past. I'm full of all of the garbage, all of those things that I'm so ashamed of. And now I have to expose myself to this power. My God, what is he gonna do when he finds me here? And I'm full of fear. And I'm at the top of Texas Roundup in Brownsville, Texas. Some years ago, and I hear a guy talking. And how often have you heard it said, keep going to meetings and eventually you'll hear what you have to hear. And there's a guy up there at the podium. He's talking about having so much trouble reaffirming his faith in a God as he understands him. And my ears went up like a rabbit. Because I knew that was like me. And as they recounted a little tale, I fell right into the feeling of the whole thing. And I began to understand not only what had happened, but what I had become and what I must do. He took away all the gifts of the past when he told of this sharecropping family that lived in Georgia. And if you've ever been in Georgia, you know how tough it is to make a living in Georgia. And this family used to just scrape a living out of the soil in Georgia. And they had none of the luxuries that you and I and people of our age today take for granted. Each year they'd make it by the skin of their teeth. Each year as their crops were harvested and sold, they just had enough to carry them through one more year. And then came a year, as it will come in time, when after everything was bought and paid for, the supplies were all in, the books were balanced and there was a $5 bill left over. First time that it ever happened. Now the family was close and a sensible family. And they knew that $5 certainly wasn't enough to buy each member of the family any kind of a reward. So they wisely, after some thought, decided to buy just one thing that perhaps this entire family could share together. And after much discussion, the family decided to buy a mirror, a looking glass. They had never owned a mirror. No one in that family had ever seen his or her own true image. They all lose a beauty in each other. But no one had ever seen himself. So it was a very exciting day. The day that the mirror arrived. And they gathered in the kitchen about the table. And they unwrapped the package and they let the father, as the head of the family, be the first to look into the mirror. Now he knew the beauty of his family, of his wife and his daughter and his son. And when he looked into the mirror and saw himself for the first time, He did exactly what elderly, mature men would do. He blushed a little bit, you know, and pulled on his overall strap and smiled and gave his nose a little shot and hung his head. And he turned and he handed the mirror to his wife, who knew the beauty of her husband and of her children. And when she looked into the mirror for her first time, she too did exactly what mature women would do, she also blushed and fooled with the back of her hair and fooled with the collar on her housecoat and respected and giggled a little bit and blushed some more and turned and, and handed the mirror to her teenage daughter, who was a beautiful girl and knew of all the beauty in her parents and her little brother. And she did exactly what teenage girls would do. She giggled a little bit and got red and pulled at the ribbon up in her hair and giggled a little bit more and blushed and turned when she handed the mirror to her little seven-year-old brother who knew all of the beauty of his family. Now her little seven-year-old brother, when he had only been one year old, he'd been standing alongside side of his daddy while his daddy was milking a cow. And the cow had kicked out and struck that little boy right in the face. And what was supposed to have been a face on the little child was nothing but twisted, ugly, grotesque-looking flesh. And when that little boy looked into the mirror and saw that twisted, ugliness that was supposed to be his face, he fell back in total horror. And he was scared, he was full of fear, and he cried out, and he went running to his mother. He said, My God! Mother, have I always been this ugly? And she said, No. You haven't always been this ugly. And he said, but Mama, how can you love me when I'm so ugly? And she said what any mother would say. Because you're mine. And that's how I stand with God this very moment as I understand him. For you see, he besides myself is the only other person who has known me in my complete and total ugliness. When my family, with just cause, had to turn away from me because of my ugliness, when my friends, also with just cause, had to turn away, I stood as described in the book with my back against the wall and demanding to be made a decision. God could and would if he was so So I sought this God as directed in the ten step of the program about all of Alcoholics and Arts. I would never be that self-centered or that egotistical to believe that God as I understand him came directly to me. But I know that somewhere he selected one of you to be his instrument. And he chose that person to carry that instrument to me. And when the instrument was presented to me, it was presented to me in what we refer to as a form of a gift. The gift of sobriety. And it took place in an assembly room just like this. Just as it can be exchanged here in this room tonight. The gift of sobriety, because it's carried by each sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you want what we have, then you need do nothing more than to reach out for this gift. But when you reach out for this gift and it is laid into your care, take it and bring it close to you. And while you hold it, protect it with your life. Because this sobriety is your life. And as you hold it, take from it its strength, its compassion, its understanding, and its learning. And if you'll do these things, sooner than you expect, and certainly much sooner than you deserve, you'll be able to stand up and walk once more amongst your fellows with some semblance of dignity and you will become one of that million. But if you sit here tonight as that other side that is referred to in the book Alcoholics Anonymous where it says these deadly words despite all we can say many who are real alcoholics by every form of self-deception and experimentation will try to prove themselves the exception to the rule. You want to know how deadly that kind of an attitude is? As I said in the opening there are over one million members of Alcoholics Anonymous to date. One million. That's one million people Just like you and I multiply this audience by whatever it would take to bring it to a million and this is AA. I have been extremely fortunate in my AA career. I have come to know thousands and thousands of members of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have been part of and been in attendance at many, many AA gatherings such as this not only in this country but in four foreign countries, and I certainly don't say that to impress you. Well, I'm trying to tell you with your understanding that I realize I will always be in a continuing state of learning. But what I would like you to understand right now is this. Right now I believe I've heard just about everything you could hear in AA. I don't really think that tonight we could hold a discussion-type meeting and discuss any of the steps. where well, I wouldn't recall hearing uh, something similar somewhere in the past. And I'm quite sure that none of you could really get up and give a, an account of your own drinking career where I wouldn't recall another similarity. Again, with your understanding, you know. I think I've heard everything you could hear. But our program is one that we refer to as being filled with some strange paradoxes. How often have we heard it said that, you got to give it away to keep it. Odd, you know. you got to die before you can live. Uh, Go east, fly northwest, huh? <laughs> Try that on for but I just did.
1: <laughs> <coughs> and there's
0: a paradox in my own program, a very strange one. So you see, in all of this time, with all of these people, there's one thing that I have never heard in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And to me, the one thing that I never have heard is far more important than everything I have heard. And it's the thing that ignites daily in me the continuing hope for this chosen way of life. For I have never heard a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous say that his or her life got worse when they stopped drinking. And I certainly do not anticipate hearing that. In very simple, knowledgeable language now, what I'm trying to say is if through some mystic power I could have brought with me today the one million members of Alcoholics Anonymous who walk around sober today and to bring them into this room and up to this podium at this time and ask them just in very simple language to explain to you did it get better or did it get worse. Only an idiot would believe that he'd hear anything but it got better. That's a million. One million. But yet how sad it is and how tragic it is and our past experiences tell us that there sits at least one of us in this room tonight who will return to drinking. Not everybody in this room is finished drinking. There's going to be somebody buck a million to one odds, And only an alcoholic will do that. Thank you so much for having me here.